Goddag, mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler om USA. En af de bøger, der under Trumps periode som præsident har gjort virkelig stor indtryk på mig, det er en bog af den amerikanske litteraturhistoriker Sarah Churchwell, som hedder Behold America. Da Trump blev præsident, der troede jeg sloganet America First var noget helt nyt. Og jeg tænkte, nu kommer der en dæmon i amerikansk historie og river det USA, vi kender fra hinanden og siger, nu skal det være Amerika først og skide være med resten af verden. Da jeg så læste Behold America, gik det op for mig, at America First var den almindelige doktrin for amerikanske præsidenter. Fem på hinanden følgende amerikanske præsidentkandidater havde det som slogan inden 2. verdenskrig. I 1960 var America First slogan for begge præsidentkandidaterne. Det var en fuldstændig almindelig indstilling. Og i virkeligheden så var det Franklin D. Roosevelt og FN og Amerika ud i verden og menneskerettigheder, som var den store undtagelse i amerikansk historie. Og det, at Trump ikke var undtagelsen, men faktisk afsluttede noget, der havde været en undtagelse i USA's historie. Og der er en kontinuitet i det, USA har været gennem 100 år, som bliver genoptaget ved Trump. Det gav mig en fuldstændig anderledes forståelse af, hvad det er, Trump bevæger i det amerikanske samfund. Og det giver mig utrolig nysgerrig på Sarah Churchwell, fordi jeg fandt ud af, at hun faktisk ikke er statskundskaber eller historiker. Hun er litteraturhistoriker. Hun har skrevet om Marilyn Monroe og The Great Gatsby. Og da Trump blev valgt, der var hun i gang med at skrive en bog om forfatteren Henry James. Men så blev Trump valgt. Og så besluttede hun sig for, at det her det var så voldsom en forandring af hendes verden. Så hun kastede sig ud i politiske studier og skrev den her fantastiske bog. Good afternoon to our viewers here in Denmark and especially I think it's actually good evening to you in the UK Sarah. It is, that's right. Og jeg er så utrolig heldig at da vi så skrev til hende og sagde, Sarah, vil du ikke nok fortælle os om den store kontinuitet i USA's historie, der kulminerer med Donald Trump, så sagde hun ja. So we really wanted to talk to you now that we hope that the presidency is over. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> og derfor så har jeg nu den store fornøjelse at kunne introducere til min samtale med Sarah Churchill. First, I want to ask you though, here in Denmark, I think we're all just delighted that the presidency is over. That Donald Trump, he lost the presidency and that this was an experiment and it has an end and he was not validated by the American voters. I understand there are a lot of people that are terrified that he has more than 70 million people voting for him and some are very disappointed that you didn't have the blue wave in, in America to absolutely end Trumpism. But we are basically delighted here in Denmark. How do you feel about the American election? Oh, I think um, delighted is a is a good word for how I feel about it as well. Um, I uh, last week was um, was very difficult. I didn't sleep for most of it. I just tried to stay up all night watching the returns. And it was like, I mean, just watching vote by vote, trying to push him out the door. I mean, I, I could not be more committed to wanting him gone. Um, and uh, and so when it actually came through on uh, Saturday, I'm, I'm afraid there was some screaming in my house. So yeah, delighted, definitely. We're in lockdown, so I couldn't go out and dance in the streets um, in London, but... Um, but I was enjoying watching all of the cities around America burst into um, into dance and song. And my family is all still in Chicago, which is where I grew up. And my sister sent me a video of just noise in Chicago, of just 
noise everywhere, which was deeply pleasing. <laughs> so how scared are you about the scenario that's unfolding right now? Is this just the last, last part of the Donald Trump theater? He's not conceding, he doesn't have the loser's playbook in him, or, or do you think that he will really threaten the outcome of the election and, and uh, deny it a peaceful transfer of power? Well, I think we have to um, answer that question in two ways, I'm afraid. So um, in terms of what Donald Trump himself can do to thwart this outcome, uh, there's almost nothing. So one of the key things to, to know um, is that the American presidency expires by a matter of law. It defaults into expiring um, on January 20th, 2021. Every four years, the presidency expires. A new president has to be inaugurated and that includes a sitting president who has been reelected. The term expires. So he can sit there, but he will not be president after January 20th unless he is sworn in by all of the, you know, the legal apparatuses that make that happen. So um, he can't do that. And there's nothing he can do about overturning the election because the margins are way too big. So they can do recounts, but it's important to know that Trump has to pay for the recounts and he's broke and they're very expensive. So he needs to raise millions and millions of dollars to try for these recounts. And at the moment, one recount won't do it. He needs them in several states and recounts only ever at most a few hundred votes and he's behind tens of thousands of votes. And remember, we still have four states that have not yet been called. Arizona looks like it's close to being called. That will be another state that pushes him if he if he loses Arizona, right? So the, 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 um, the pretext in the case that he's making gets weaker and weaker. Uh, so I'm actually a lot less worried about Trump now than I was. Um, I, I described him on social media as uh, I feel like he's a bit of a spent bullet and he's just kind of ricocheting around. So he's dangerous, you know, doc, you don't want to get hit by him. Um, but, uh, but he's not really, uh, I'm calling the shots anymore to extend that met metaphor. What worries me is the way the Republican leadership is responding, which is unprecedented in modern American history, really in all of American history. Um, since George Washington stepped down in 1796, we have always had a peaceful transfer of power. And we have never had a Secretary of State stand up as Mike Pompeo did yesterday and announce that he was not accepting the results of the election and say that there would be a smooth transition to a second term of Trump. Although it is clear that that is not the electoral outcome. We have never had um, a, a leadership, even of your own party, um, not accepting a loss. And so that worries me. I'm not worried about Trump. He can lie and do whatever. If the Republicans were just standing up and saying, Trump, stop being an idiot. The election's over. Everybody knows the election is over. Then I wouldn't be concerned at all. And it would just be absolutely empty bombast theater. The problem is his enablers are still enabling because they're seeing how far they can get away with it too. And, I, you know, and, and it's hard to know. We're hearing these stories coming out from the White House and from um, Congress and indeed Biden alluded to this yesterday in his um, speeches that he's having conversations with people behind the scenes and and that and that nobody accepts that Trump is going to do this in private. So in private, they're saying this is ridiculous. But the problem is, is that they're not coming out and saying it in public. They're just starting to. So my hope and expectation is that they will continue to stand up and do that and to say it's over, admit it. Um, but they haven't done that yet. And the fact that they haven't done that yet is deeply concerning. When when we, we look at America here from Denmark and we're not, I'm not American at least some are in Denmark, of course. 
it's obvious that Donald Trump has been an almost traumatic experience for a lot of American citizens that he has managed to radicalize and polarize all Americans to, to an extent that we did not imagine before. It was like we expected a disaster when he was elected into office. And after a couple of years, he said, well, he started no wars. And then it seems like, oh, this is the disaster, what he's done to the American mentality. Uh, what has he done to you personally? How, how did your <laughs> life change? How, how have you been affected by Donald Trump? Oh, wow. Well, uh, he has completely changed my life. Um, and um, in some ways, weirdly for the better, I guess, but um, in many ways not. I, traumatizing is a word I would absolutely identify with. That is a very good description of how I felt over the last four years. And really the book that you mentioned, um, Behold America, I wrote as a response to that, to the trauma of his election, because I needed to understand how the America I thought I knew could have created this outcome. And of course, that's a familiar feeling for a lot of people who say, it's, and, and again, that was a global feeling, right? This isn't the America we thought we knew. And Joe Biden, you know, was saying all the way through his election campaign, this is not who we are. But at some point you have to say, seems to be who we are because we voted for him and he stayed in power for four years. And as you say, uh, 70 million people just voted for him. He gained on his previous um, election. So I don't want this to be who we are, but it looks like this is who we are. Um, so without wanting to join in their denialism, and I think there's a lot of denial in, in what they do, there, we needed to look squarely at facts and say, how did this happen? And, um, and so for me as a writer and as a, a historian, um, that became a way uh, for me to make sense of it and to try to understand for myself. But I also wrote through the anger. So it became very therapeutic for me. So I was just, put, and I wrote the book really fast because rage is propulsive, right? So I had this drive to push me through the book. Um, but I was supposed to be writing a book about the American writer, Henry James. That's what I was doing. So, I mean, it absolutely changed, you know, my, my professional trajectory. And, um, and over the course of that, I've um, really been, um, uh, um, engaging deeply with um, political history in America in a way that I hadn't before. I did cultural history, and by that I mean, you know, kind of arts and literature and film. And so, of course, politics comes into that. But I had never engaged directly with, you know, geopolitical aspects. And now that's kind of inescapable. And indeed, it's meant that I've had to be engaging with theories of fascism and ideas of European fascism and histories of European fascism. So that's been partly, a, um, as I say, a kind of it was both a professional response, but it was also, it, it was a psychological response for me of a way of trying to make sense of it all. When you look at America from the outside, from the UK, do you have the experience that, that at least I have here, that they have been, that even his opponents have been radicalized to an enormous extent for in just a couple of years? I mean, when I was growing up and we were watching CNN, they were like the neutral arbiters of the world. We were just they were authorities. It happened. They said it on CNN. You know, watching the O.J. Simpson trial, they were like, they were like the uncle telling us what's going on in the world, <laughs> and we relied on them. And now you see them, and it's not. I couldn't mention other examples than CNN, but now you see them just slamming the president, and, and you can mm. see them laughing when he does something stupid. And it seems that a lot of people that we thought were just disengaged, neutral observers of reality, they've become parts of a struggle and they've changed. Have, have you seen that as well? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And, you. and as you say, it was very striking during the coverage 
it was really interesting to watch how some of the CNN anchors began the election coverage trying to maintain that neutrality. And by the end, they were just saying, this is not acceptable, you can't do this. Um, and they went into it knowing that he was likely to lie, that he was likely to claim uh, victory in the middle of the election. We knew that that was, you know, as you say, in his playbook. Um, and he announced uh, during the campaign that, that that's what he was going to do. And he announced it in 2016 that he would only accept uh, the outcome if he won. So he has said all along that that's who he is. And after four years, I think the, the news finally caught up. I think it's it's really difficult. I would say that he has absolutely degraded American political discourse without any question whatsoever. And that kind of news coverage is part of that political discourse, also so-called civil discourse, which in America is now remarkably uncivil. Um, but the but I think that that it's not to me. It's also that he's exposing cracks that were always there, and then by exposing the cracks that were always there, that deepens the cracks. So instead of trying to hold things together, he's pushing them as far apart as fast as he can, and so the cracks are deepening and they're spreading, right? As cracks do, so you get that kind of you know capillary spreading of the of the cracks as they um, as it all starts to crumble. Um, but I, I actually, although I agree with you that that it was dispiriting um, to watch the CNN anchors have to respond like that, I actually don't think they had much of a choice. I think that, in my view anyway, as a citizen and as an observer, I think they had to call it out. And you can't keep on your white gloves no. when somebody is shooting you in the head. No, no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so they had to say this is wrong and they had to come out and say that. And I think they would have preferred to maintain their neutrality, but they recognized that that was dangerous. You can't be neutral. It's like being neutral about genocide or you know that kind of equivalent of something that is deeply, deeply malevolent. You can't be neutral about it. You have to take a position. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I don't mean to condemn them because I've <laughs> often wondered how we would cover it because when someone kicks you in the balls and if you keep arguing, you look like a loser. If you kick them back, then you're part of the fight. So actually, I don't know what would be the correct response. Exactly. I just see that he revealed and, and made something explode in America that made yeah. people that I trusted seem a little crazy all of a sudden. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I think to your point, it's, been, it's something that we've all grappled with. Um, as you say, like, what's the right answer? Because either I'm lowering down to his tone, but if I try to, as you know, Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. But we kept seeing that that was a losing proposition. And Steve Bannon, you know, um, Trump's former advisor famously said, you know, the, the Democrats are having a pillow fight while we go for a head wound. Right. And and that's the problem. So but I also think that those that those divisions, as I say, those were always there. And what I, what I've been saying lately um, is that a country that calls itself. I actually wish I'd thought of this for the book because it's not in the book, but it's really what the book is about. Um, but I only thought of it later, which is that a country that calls itself the United States is protesting too much. You know, it's like yeah. it's like it's trying to convince everybody and itself that we're united. But a country called the United States is is announcing that there are a lot of divisions there. Um, like, no, we're united. I promise. <laughs> you know? yeah. 
And, and the United States has had a series of civil wars, not just the big one that we had from 1861 to 1865, but the, the American Revolution was also a civil war. It was brother against brother, families divided, where they some were loyal to the monarchy and some were revolutionaries. So, you know, we have, we have all, and, and then again, you know, 1968 in the early 70s, the fights over Vietnam, you know, that led to mass bombings around America and to riots and, you know, to the, the calling of the National Guard, you know, onto university campuses and stuff. So unfortunately, we have done this before. What we're not good at, in my view, is, um, to say the least, is telling the truth about our own history and to confronting those dark um, aspects of our past, which again, is precisely what I was trying to do in the book is to say that, you know, and to take a lesson from Germany, in particular, um, the the uh, the courage and the and the clarity with which they confronted the darkness of their past, in order to rebuild democracy, and recognizing that you had to do that to rebuild democracy, that you couldn't build it on a lie, um, and on a series of fictions, and that's really what America has tried to do: is to pretend that the bad stuff didn't happen, but that we could build a democracy on just the good ideas but the bad stuff was there festering away. And now here we are. I think that's what your book did to a lot of us here is that I thought America first was something absolutely new in American history. You know, I was born in 74. I grew up in the post world order with, you know, I, I thought John F. Kennedy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, they were, they represented the true America and that the others that George W. Bush, were, he, he was a kind of aberration from that. So I grew up thinking that the most globalist and the most universalist America was the true America. But that, that was the normal state of America. But having read your book and having found out, I don't know if it's five or six presidents who made America first their slogan and two even two competing presidents in 1916, both had America first <laughs> as a slogan. I think that maybe Franklin D. Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, they were the exception and that America first is the normal America. How do you see that? Well, I think that's exactly the question. And, um, and that's, yeah, what I was trying to figure out in the book myself in a way. But I think the answer has to be that it's both. And that's the problem. Um, it's not that one is more real than the other. It's that they're trying to coexist, but they're mutually exclusive. <laughs> so they're two deeply opposing worldviews that are trying to sit side by side. I mean, another way of, of, of thinking about it, of, and I do say this in the book of, of conceptualizing it, is that, you know, America has not one myth about its founding, not just one myth of Genesis, but two myths of Genesis, and they compete with each other. So one is the, uh, the pilgrims landing at Plymouth Rock in 1620, the Mayflower, and that's the founding of a theocracy of God's chosen people, um, and that's the founding myth of American exceptionalism that we, you know, we're going to get this right. And, you know, God loves us the most. Um, and uh, I'm smiling because it's just so patently absurd. But anyway, so um, so there's that story, which obviously has great purchase on the American imagination and on American history and is still taught to school children. And, um, and then 150 years later, we had another Genesis myth which is the founding fathers, the framers of the constitution, the declaration of independence, the split from Britain. And that founding of America was based on continental enlightenment philosophy, on democracy. So basically you have one story that's about a theocracy 
and one story that it's about a democracy. And then you say, we're going to have both. And they're just going to keep going side by side. Um, and it doesn't work. And right now we're seeing one of the times where it really doesn't work. I mean, in my view, a lot of the fight that we're having is, um, is as much about theocracy and as much about evangelicalism as it is about Trump and, and fascism and his lies. It's really about authoritarianism versus democracy. It's one party rule versus pluralism. And we can see the ways that the Republicans are choosing authoritarianism and indeed a narrow evangelical authoritarianism by their choice of Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court, most obviously by the way that the overturning of abortion rights in America has become you know, the driving choice of so many of Trump supporters. So that those issues are um, are defining America, but also it's deeply patriarchal, right? So that uh, this idea that there's this authoritarian man in charge um, is one view of America. And then if you like the kind of view of America that's represented by maybe the Black Lives Matter protest, which of course is uh, not just multiracial, but is a movement that is run by African-American women, right? That, that the leaders of the BLM movement are women. Um, and so, or a kind of, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez kind of view of America as the young non-white male, <laughs> non-white, non-male, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, um, articulating a more pluralist view of America. And they are in direct conflict right now. It's just a battle between the two. So there's no real one or false one. It's two opposing ideas about what America should be and they're battling it out. When you look through history, you, you, you're, You've, uh, you point to that this tension between the authoritarianism and the liberal idea in America was always there and it plays out in different scenarios and different epochs uh, with, with, with different positions, but that this is kind of the basic struggle of American democracy or the American Republic. When has that tension been like a positive dialectic? When has that done something good for, for, for America? When I, I've been in America to cover elections, I've always been very impressed by the fact that everyone respects the Constitution. Every, you know, even people working in Burger King, they know this is my right. I know this amendment. There is some common denominators in, in America too. So, so when was this a, a positive exchange of ideas? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, um, and I agree, it's really important to understand that what does hold the United States together, and it has held together, right? So you can, you can flip what I said a minute ago and say, we keep having civil wars, but we also stay united. We keep yeah. coming together. So we haven't split off. Um, and so there is something that binds us together. And the, what binds us together is that set of value systems. And that's why the constitution is such an important part of how Americans think about um, ourselves and our country. There have definitely been positive dialectics. There have definitely been times where the country came together and um, and pushed forward. Um, but again, it depends on your political point of view, right? So um, from my point of view, um, FDR is a really good example of what you're talking about. So the New Deal. Um, the New Deal came about because the United States had to recognize in the early years of the Great Depression that it had gone wrong, that it had gotten it wrong. And people were concerned that um, the American experiment was failing. And instead of just denying it and, and pretending that it was all okay, which is America's usual favorite way of, as I say, <laughs> of its favorite coping mechanism is just pretend that's not happening. Um, but, um, but in this case, for many reasons that didn't seem politically possible and things had gotten messy enough that America had to kind of take stock um, 
And, and then it built the welfare state. Then it actually thought this through and it actually created, for the first time, it created these kinds of you know, structures for its citizens. But you can even look after the Civil War because you know, that was such a difficult, fraught time in America and so many bad things happened in the, in the period immediately following the Civil War. But we forget sometimes that what the period that became known as Reconstruction, which is the, the immediate end of the Civil War in 1865, 1866, to roughly the mid 1870s, you can end it at different points, but at most a decade, um, somewhere between six years and a decade. And we call that Reconstruction. And, and, the, and what happened in Reconstruction was really radical. It was an attempt to create a mixed race government out of what had been a, out of what had been a racialized slave state, and then instantly go from that to mixed race leadership. Um, so we didn't try to do it gradually. We just went, all right, all in, you know? So, so the slaves are now emancipated and they can be senators, you know? And, um, and that's really quite remarkable when you think about it. Um, or when you think about uh, um, women getting the vote as well. I mean, I do, because I, 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 having lived in Europe for a while, I know that Europeans do enjoy sometimes um, having a laugh about backwards Americans. And so I did become familiar with the dates in uh, certain European countries when um, women got the vote so that I can occasionally come back to some European countries and point out that there were a few that took a lot longer to give women the vote. Um, yes, Switzerland, I'm looking at you, um, <laughs> than, than the United States did and that we did it at the same time as Britain, you know, 1919, 1920. So we weren't the first, but we were on the early side. So there, the, the, that progressive energy in America is very real and it does get things done as well and I tend to think that we're kind of three steps forward two steps back country yeah. which is why we don't give up on ourselves and it's why African Americans for example remain so deeply committed to the political experiment and see America rightly um, as their country and understand the degree of political work that they do but they don't just leave it we don't just surrender America to these people, we fight for it because there is a commitment there. And because we do make progress and we can see that progress is made, it's just not enough. <laughs> yeah. And the commitment is shared by both sides, isn't it? It's something that both sides have in common. It used to be. Yeah. Um, that's what concerns me now is that, um, you know, and that is literally what keeps me awake at nights right now. And I am. I have not been sleeping since the election. Everybody else I know is saying, you know, oh, I'm sleeping like a baby again, and I'm not. And I'm waking up in the middle of the night. Uh, um, I'm really, really anxious because for the first time, I no longer see Republicans of principle standing up for the system and saying our primary um, um, commitment is to the constitution. Our primary commitment is to country, not to party. And what they have done, as we have all seen, is put party over country over and over and over again. And their determination to hang on to power. Um, Trump should absolutely and self-evidently have been removed when he was impeached in January. He should have been. He, I mean, he, he, he was absolutely banged to rights on all of it. He had done all of it. Um, and it's, that's really disturbing to me. So it used to be that both sides were deeply committed to those principles. Um, I look at Mitch McConnell and I do not see a man who is committed to any principles whatsoever. Um, you know, he's committed to self-enrichment, he's committed to power, 
those are the opposite of principles. <laughs> you know, when which you know, I did have somebody say to me once, you know, I think Mitch McConnell's really principled because he sticks with it no matter what. And I was like, no, that's just stubborn. Um, <laughs> that's not principled. And if it, and if all of your so-called principles and your so-called ideologies all uh, enrich you and they're all self-interest then that's the definition of unprincipled, <laughs> you know? I mean, principle is precisely that which you do regardless of whether it benefits you personally. And if every single thing that you do benefits you personally, then it ain't principle. <laughs> I just want to emphasize that we're all cultural Americans here in Denmark as well. You know, our sense of beauty, our pictures of fashion, our pictures of what is a wonderful woman and a wonderful man come from American pop culture. So whatever I say, it's within that horizon of, uh, uh, but but something that was very striking to me and scary was I was reading through the exit polls and I saw the Republicans and the Democrats had absolutely did separate views of what was real, not just separate views, but but 78% of the Democrats, they thought the economy was doing not so good or very poor. 81% of the Republican, elect, uh, Republicans said that the economy was doing excellent or good. 80% of the Republicans thought that coronavirus is somewhat or totally under control. 83% of the Democrats, I could go through and through through. What was revealing to me was that this was just two, they had two different realities inside their mind. And what you were referring to before Franklin D. Roosevelt in the 30s, a premise for that was that you saw the same reality, that you actually shared the same factual re reality is this split between two different realities is this something new in america absolutely and that's what's so dangerous and you've absolutely put your finger on it so there were these different opinions about the facts but the facts were shared and now they have set up two alternate sets of facts it's not clear how those can be reconciled and it's not clear how you find common ground when you don't even agree what ground you're standing on um so the problem here is, um, in my view, is the commercialization of American political media. So it's the fact that there are no kind of state protections on um, media, and particularly political media. So that, as you know, you know, the more money you you have, the the more you can campaign in America. And there are none of the kinds of rules about fair elections and fair campaigns. There are almost no limits on what you can do. There are no limits on what you can spend. Citizens United, which was the Supreme Court decision that said that corporations could be treated as individuals, is a really important part of that. So that led to major corruption. Um, and then the other thing that was really important was that we used to have um, in our broadcasting television the same principles that pertain in, in Europe and indeed in Britain. Um, ours was called the Fairness Doctrine, which said basically that you had to have some attempt at objective truth and some attempt at balance. And, um, and Reagan abolished the Fairness Doctrine in 87 on the grounds that it was um, blocking free speech, that it was against First Amendment rights to free speech, and that it was censorship. Um, to all intents and purposes. And uh, four years later, Rupert Murdoch set up Fox News. And Fox News is what is telling viewers that coronavirus is no big deal. And it is what is telling them that the economy is great. And it is telling them that um, that Trump is great for the economy. And, they, and there is no alternative point of view. So it's a closed system. And, um, and yet it's treated as a credible news source. And we have seen the ways in which it became Donald Trump's propaganda arm. That was already a problem. And then you add Facebook into the mix and you add the ways in which, and we've seen this coming out even just over the last weeks, 
the way in which Facebook said that it would, you know, put in these kinds of political um, controls and guess what they didn't and guess what it's come out that actually they were um, once again um, uh, giving right wing um, um, propaganda and political campaigning much more airtime and pushing it higher up the algorithms and all of that stuff than they were to the left wing stuff. And this is stuff that they had themselves have revealed. I mean, this has come out in interviews. This isn't a, a wild accusation. So. Um, until we get media under control and until we the reason that Trump got elected is in 2016 is because he hijacked the American media because he understood that if he created a carnival, all the cameras would be on him because he understood how the entertainment part of it worked. And he gave them bread and circuses and they voted for it. And literally Hillary Clinton was, you know, kind of over here giving, uh, you know, a speech about policy mm -hmm. and the cameras wouldn't go near her because it was boring. And they, they've later worked out that um, Trump, by doing that, Trump leveraged in um, earned media to the tune of $2 billion worth of television media he got for free because he put on a show. Hmm. Until we get that under control, we're not <clears throat> going to get anywhere. And that's where those two separate realities comes from, is these two separate media spheres that are telling people different things. And it depends on where you get your facts and it depends on where you get your critical thinking and how those facts are tested. Um, and, and, and that's the difference. And, that, and it's about empiricism, you know? It's about where do the facts come from? And um, at the moment, the, the um, American right wing is not based in empirical fact. It is dealing with what, you know, whatever it wants to believe. Um, Fox tells it is true and then everybody's happy. You, you live in the UK, so you live in a different public and you've experienced Boris Johnson and Brexit that was tumultuous and he's- Yeah, said, that's going great too. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I just, my sense is, but, but I'm a foreigner in both countries and I see everything at a distance, so I'm absolutely an amateur here, is that nevertheless, there is, there is public discourse in the UK that is shared by everyone. Something happens in reality and it changes opinions and that the BBC is still like a commonly recognized authority. Is that so? It is so, but they have just uh, um, launched their version of Fox News. And um, I can't remember what it's called, but because um, it hasn't really started yet, but they've announced it. And um, a BBC broadcaster called Andrew Neil is going to be heading it up and it's going to happen here. And um, I am deeply alarmed by what it can do and um, by its ability, because clearly we've seen that Johnson, uh, the Johnson government uh, more um, um, plays by the Trump playbook. They do just try to brazen things out. They just insist that up is down and left is right when it suits them politically. Um, they, they, you know, don't feel themselves held by um, older political norms. They don't feel themselves, you know, accountable to the rules um, uh, and to the laws uh, in some cases. So, um, you know, the, then to have their own propaganda um, news um, broadcaster is deeply, deeply concerning to me. And I think that too many British people, because they haven't lived through the transition in America from that kind of um, national broadcaster who you trusted through to this breakdown that's been, in my view, caused by Fox News. And I, and I did grow up with that. I grew up with the broadcasters who we trusted. And then I watched it happen as an adult. So I very clearly have seen both worlds. And I worry that 
the British don't understand what they're getting themselves into. And, and in the um, years that I've lived here, I've seen Britain kind of willy-nilly follow the United States down several dark paths. And it's like, America's in front of you showing that this isn't a good idea. Why on earth are you doing it? We're here as a cautionary tale, you know, learn the lesson, uh, learn from our mistakes. And, um, and Britain is replicating them in my view because um, there's money to be made that way free market capitalism, you know, so what they want is a deregulated free market capitalism where it's a free for all and um, and things like the BBC act as um, barriers to that for precisely this reason, because they insist on a shared truth, which makes it harder to manipulate. It's much easier to manipulate this fabricated truth. So that's where I'm, I fear um, Britain is heading. So I'm afraid we're all going to be um, searching for the next sensible place where we can live you're gonna have there's gonna be another you know migrant crisis and it's not going to be the british pushing people out it's going to be the british trying to get europe to let them in um and please can we come to a sane country we ruined ours but we'll try not to ruin yours which is how i feel as an american you know knocking <laughs> on people's doors going i know my country's really bad but could you let me in <laughs> <laughs> another conflict that i was quite surprised had such a long history that i learned from your book is the conflict between urban elites that were supposedly less American than the rural provincial population that was supposedly more American. I thought actually that was, a, 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 of course I knew there was a conflict between the metropolitan areas and, and the countryside, but I did not know that it was kind of a sociological conflict with a history of, of 100 years. H how has that conflict between the liberals and the cities and, and, uh, and the conservative in the country. How has that evolved over time in America? Well, it, it actually goes, goes, in some sense, it goes back even further, which is um, because that whole idea of the real American being in the country and in the heartland, um, that really comes from Thomas Jefferson. So he had this vision of the small yeoman farmer as the perfect American, and that was the common man. Um, and so this idea of the common man being the real American and the, you know, the, again, I'd say like the kind of salt of the earth and the, the, the um, you know, the heart of the country um, is an old one. And, um, and then the um, Jackson presidency. So Jackson was president in the, um, in the early decades of the 19th century. And he was the first president who did come from uh, a non-aristocratic background. So he was the first one who was really poor when he was growing up and did, um, you know, kind of make something of himself. And so he helped um, embed that idea in America that the real American was this kind of this guy who was from the frontier or from, you know, the who was, grew up on a farm. And, you know, you see that with the mythologies around Abraham Lincoln, that he's the rail splitter. And that makes him a friend of the people because he grew up in a log cabin, you know, and it's deeply silly as soon as you think about it. I mean, the idea that growing up on a farm makes you a better person um, it's just it doesn't hold up at all. But it is, um, but so in that sense, it's an old myth. But where it really got embedded 100 years ago was when the city started to explode. And when cities also then became the places where, where a big immigrant population was settling mm -hmm. and the demographic um, makeup of America changed very rapidly between 1900 and 1920. There was a huge influx of Europeans, particularly Southern and Eastern Europeans, a big influ influx of Russian Jews, a big influx of um, Italian Americans, I mean, Italians who became Italian American. Um, and um, and those, um, those demographic shifts, those populations um, went to cities 
Um, and so that deepened that sense that the cities were this kind of foreign place full of foreign people with foreign values. And then you add to it the religiosity of America. So then the sense that also this was where the satanic liberals progressives were living with their women in short skirts and smoking their cigarettes and having sex. And, yeah. um, and hopefully the women, you know, I hope the women in the cities were doing all of those things. Um, God bless. Um, but uh, so, you know, of course, so for the, the patriarchal, you know, rural Baptist, you know, point of view, um, this is where all of this kind of demonic life is happening. And, um, and that really gained traction in the 20s and it gained traction through um, uh, cultural fictions as well, through really popular novels. Um, and it just, that was really when that became um, a kind of paradigm that we understood America through um, and we haven't managed to get rid of it. <laughs> I, have just, uh, I have just two more questions. One of them is, <clears throat> now everyone is saying this that, that you need to heal the wounded nation or there, it seems that that even when you I only see Republicans on Fox News but but even when you hear Republicans there is this common demand for some sort of, 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 of unity and when you hear Democrats talking about it it's they talk like heal a wounded nation like it's a disease and you want to get well well again and I I understand that it's a metaphor, but how do you think that could play out in reality? This reconstruction, this opposites meeting, establishing common ground, how could this be a political event and not just a therapeutical event? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And if I knew the answer, I would be in Washington DC getting paid lots of money as a political consultant. Um, but it's absolutely what we have to figure out how to do if we are going to hold together. And the thing is, again, in those well, after those past divisions, we have managed to kind of come together and we have had that rhetoric of healing and uniting and reuniting. And, um, but the, the issue is the ways that those reunions and reunifications were created. Um, the most obvious example was that um, after the Civil War, the way that um, that the United States came back together was really because what white America did was join forces to push black people down into an inferior um, caste and um, and to deny them their rights. And so really what, what the United States came back together again was around white supremacy. Um, and you know, the, the question is, can we find something positive to come around um, to bring us back together again? Can we find that common ground? But the issue is the is your previous question, which is these separate realities. Um, until we actually establish, you know, as I say, what that ground is, it's not clear to me how we can create um, a shared political common ground. And I think you're right that then it will it can only be rhetoric at that point, and there will not be a reality behind it. It will just be so many words saying, "Oh, we've healed." Well, you haven't actually healed if you haven't sought, you know, if you haven't gotten at the root of the poison, and we have not yet done that. Uh, it it's if if you see Joe Biden's plan, build back better. His plan for for reindustrialization of America. We from a social democratic country, we love that. I love the, I love the plan. I think it's just a great plan because it's not just taxes. It's doing real policies, going back to the great reforms of of of, of FDR. <clears throat> But it seems to me also that there is a critique of the way globalization has been handled up to now. That. This is a new way of looking at the world for the Democrats. This is not Obama. This is not Bill Clinton. This is kind of a pro progressive protectionism. Could, would yeah. you say that 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 there's actually a kind of 
social democratic America first in the way that Joe Biden is looking at the world, that he actually accepts the critique of globalization and says we must invest in our own country first. And with that, you make an American first. That's not rejection of the world, but that's a premise of rebuilding America in the world. Yeah, well, I think that is the view that um, Woodrow Wilson, who, as you'll remember, um, coined the phrase America first in 1915, that was really what he was trying to argue for. Um, and he was saying that it should be America first to lead in the world and America first to do good in the world, but that it also needed to protect itself in order to do that. So a kind of enlightened self-interest. Um, I think you're right that the that the Biden um, I'm going to call it the Biden administration because it is going to be the Biden administration um, that it recognizes um, that the failure to address globalization head on had a lot to do with Hillary Clinton's loss and they were determined not to make that mistake again. Um, I think that it also represents a compromise between the progressive wing of the Democrat Party and the more centrist. Um, wing, but they recognize that neoliberalism as an approach is deeply unpopular. Um, it's deeply unpopular, not just in America, but increasingly it's unpopular abroad. And, you know, arguably it doesn't work. I mean, you can also just make that critique of it, that it hasn't actually uh, um, created uh, security and stability. We're watching everything destabilize around it. So, I think that's right. It's got to be, it seems to me um, that, that the solution has to be something like, like enlightened self-interest, which is we recognize that, of course, we have to protect our, our people in our country and our communities. We have to protect our economies um, and that we have to recognize that there's, a, that there's a give and take there, but that it can't be all give and it can't be all take. Um, and, that, and that globalization is about cooperation and collaboration. Um, which, you know, the neoliberal project said it was, but it wasn't actually. It was just about who can make the most money where. And so if we go back to a notion of, um, and again, this is something I say in the book, the older English word, which I really like, which is common weal um, instead of commonwealth. And it means common well-being. I think we need to return to a notion of common well-being and common decency, which, you know, in English is, is a pun, right? Yes. Um, so uh, both, you know, just a ground level of decency, but also a decency that is shared, um, that is collective. And, and in my view, that's what we have to get back to. How we do that is another matter entirely. But I agree with you that I think that Biden's plan is quite promising. Um, and, you know, we can only hope that it starts to, to build back better in the ways that he thinks he and his advisors think that it will. Well, sir, I've been looking so much forward to talking to you. And that was so great. Don't you thank you so much for taking your time and enlightening us and thank you so much for your book behold america that i recommend to everyone to read and to give to their loved ones thank you very much thank you very much det var min samtale med sarah churchwell i næste uge der har jeg en samtale med en af avisens kammerater og informationsforlags bestseller nemlig den franske økonom thomas bigetti som jeg har været så heldig at tale med endnu en gang til et stort Zoom-arrangement i Den Sorte Diamant. Jeg kan løftsløret for, at vi taler om Bernie Sanders. Vi taler om, hvorfor den sande liberalist i virkeligheden må være socialist, og hvorfor Piketty er utrolig skuffet over Danmark, men ikke helt har opgivet os endnu. Så lyt med i næste uge, når jeg taler med Piketty.